Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 410 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look at the past interviews menu, and you'll see under that the, all the previous ones arranged in several different ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a, a PayPal button on every page of the site. And um, also, I'm going to mention this in the next few interviews until people get used to it. We used to have comments on YouTube, and we shut that down because it was too unruly, but I've set up a Facebook group uh, where people can discuss various interviews, and you'll see a link to that group in the text underneath this video. Not Actually, not the live video, but the permanent one. You'll see a link to that page uh, if you want to participate in discussion. My guest today is Christina Donnell. And um, I actually didn't know too much about Christina when I first began preparing for this interview. Irene had set up the interview, and I looked at Christina's webpage and said, it looks good to me. Um, <laughs> but when I actually started preparing for it and reading her little book, which is called Transcendent Dreaming, I was delighted. I, I thought, wow, this is wonderful, so interesting, and you know, such a profound, deep person. So I'm really glad that we invited her, and I, I think that those of you watching will really enjoy this discussion. I'll just read a little, some bits of her bio here. Christina is a spiritual teacher, mystic, and author. She is the director of the Winds of Change Association, an, education or, an educational organization dedicated to offering programs that tend our evolving human consciousness. In her book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential, she chronicles quantum states of awareness in which the participatory nature of perception impacts our visible world. It is a deep foray into truths about our human potential, a new distribution of our resources, and a way to know unity consciousness and be its agent in the world. <clears throat> Christina conveys a simple yet profound message. Through deepening receptive awareness, the participatory nature of perception unfolds and the transfiguration of our consciousness occurs. Christina was initiated as a medicine woman by the Caro Indians of the High Andes and has worked closely with them for 25 years. Inspired by the cultural shifts and changing human values on a planetary scale, she is dedicated to cultivating and awakening the potency of the human spirit. So thanks, Christina. Welcome. Good morning, Rick. Or good, good. afternoon at this point. Yeah. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to have you. So you and I were both joking before we started this interview that you read this book yesterday for the first time in nine years, and I read it like the beginning of the week, and we both tend to be the type <laughs> where things go in one ear and out the other. All I know is, you know, without remembering a lot of specifics about your book, that I really enjoyed it. Every chapter was fascinating. But one thing I'd like to ask to begin with is, um, are you one of these people who started having mystical experiences at a young age, like as a child or something? I've often thought that I came into the world as a dreamer. Like It's really deep in my essence and in my soul. And my earliest recollection, although at the time I thought it was normal, it wasn't until many years later I realized it wasn't normal, is about the age of four or five. And uh, I was living in Detroit. My father was a cop. It was during the um, riots and the civil rights uh, riots in the 60s, and I remember 
all the police officers putting on riot gear and holding my mother's hands and the wives kissing their husbands goodbye. And um, I remember feeling all the anxiety in that situation. And in order to quell that during that time, at night I would escape off into the lap of this really large African-American woman who would sing me spirituals. And I could just feel the essence and the soulfulness of it. And it was deeply comforting to me. And I thought that was normal until I wrote my first book in first grade, my, a six-page book on African-American spirituals. And both my parents and teachers wondered how I uh, was able to recite them so easily. And that was my first real awareness that maybe what was coming through me was different than others. And this woman was not somebody who others would have seen. You were kind of shifting into an alternate reality where Absolutely. She, she existed. and yeah, Absolutely. And I don't believe I've ever met this woman to, to this day. So, right. Yes. Were the spirituals you were singing and that you knew ones that actually exist? Or were, or were they somehow not even you know, known to, to our culture? They did exist. <laughs> okay. They did exist. Yeah, like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, or whatever, <laughs> different ones. <laughs> That's interesting. What do you attribute that to? Some past life thing, or some alternate reality visit, or what? You know, it's always tricky for me to talk about past lives, because you kind of have to live in a linear reality to believe in a past life. Um, but I certainly do believe that there are simultaneous realities continuously. And I think my essence just had enough flexibility to move with fluidity in between those worlds and still does today. Um, meaning I didn't, ha it didn't have to be educated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had people tell me that the whole notion of past lives is really not linear, that all whatever lives we may lead are simultaneous. And that we, we just sort of attribute linearity to it, to interpret our, our ordinary reality, but really everything is happening simultaneously. Right. It's very, very difficult for our brain to understand that everything is happening simul simultaneously. So uh, our li little linear model is, uh, is helpful for reason. Yeah. Well, there seems to be physical evidence. I mean, we look at the Andromeda galaxy and we know that the light that's coming to that originated two million years ago, and yet they say from the perspective of the photon, if you were traveling at the speed of light, it, it is simultaneous, it's instantaneous. The photon gets here immediately. There's no sense of time or space between the galaxies. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Huh. And I just read recently the literature, I think this came out in 2014, but somebody passed it on to me, We've now identified the quantum states and the microtubules of the neurons of the brain. And, you know, as soon as you shift into that quantum state, space and time collapse, and there's a lot of simultaneity occurring. So I think it actually exists in the body, you know, um, and can be anchored in the body. Hmm. So, in other words, the body has this innate capacity to tune into quantum levels of reality, is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, and really um, at some place where the awareness is present there, 
then you can you can be present in a quantum state. So, not that it's just always going on, but we're unaware of it. But that you actually begin to uh, anchor reality from there as maybe a second language. Yeah, interesting. Um, so take us along then. So this, you had this kind of experience when you were a little child, and then. Um, what was the? I, sometimes it's it's funny. We're talking about linearity and time and all that and chronologies, but it's it's real handy when doing an interview to kind of walk people through the stages of their life in a way because things do tend to appear to unfold in, in a linear way. And so then, obviously, you got a little older and you went into your teenage years. I mean, did you go like many people? Did you go through a a period where you lost that depth of cognition and? kind of felt it slipping away and longed for it and so on, or did you actually manage to retain it through your adolescence? I think periodically it was retained. I have a very long history of flying in my dreams and flying to both familiar and unfamiliar places. But at the same time, uh, through adolescence, young adulthood, very intellectual and also an elite athlete. And in retrospect, I go, boy, it was a good thing because I was learning how to wield the body. So my awareness was really more present in those places. And it wasn't until my late 20s, which I write about in the book, where I was a director at an anxiety disorders clinic at the major medical center here. And came home from work, went to bed, had a dream, ended up being a prophetic dream of uh, my father dying in an automobile accident. And in that dream, every detail uh, of the moment before his death unfolded. So from the place where he removed grandchildren's toys from the back seat to going. He kissed my mother's side of the bed. He kissed a family picture. He told the family dog to take care of the farm. It was a 40-acre hobby farm and drove down a, um, a country road and hit a single tree in the middle of winter. And at the time of that dream, as soon as he hit that tree, uh, I catapulted into a state of just pure expanded awareness and merged in with his awareness both of us looking down at his body and um and it was actually kind of an ecstatic exquisite experience um and then as i came out of the dream i just assumed i was preparing for his death because he had lou gehrig's disease he had als um but the next day somebody came to the medical center and let me know that my father had died at 8.25 a.m. in the morning in a single automobile car crash. And that was really, uh, so that was be late 20s when I realized, okay, I'm, I'm beginning to have states of awareness that are just beyond what we consider linear or ordinary. And um, I started paying more attention to them. <laughs> yeah. Did you begin to culture them in various ways and explore, you know, means of shifting your awareness and all, or was it just sort of coming on spontaneously? At the time, I, um, you know, I was a martial artist at the mm -hmm. world level, so I was doing a lot of Zen meditation, um, and I think that in the quieting of the mind, uh, 
and really the becoming very, very still, expanded states of awareness were beginning to just spontaneously occur. And then they continue to occur through the dreaming. Mm-hmm. So do they, they occurred both in, in your wakeful Zen practice and in your dream states? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Kind of interesting the way you describe the onset of these expanded states of awareness. Uh, what was it, like a, a syrupy, heavy kind of thing you would feel coming over you and next thing you know you would, you would go into this you know, transcendence or unboundedness? Yes, yes. It was, um, and of course, you know, now in retrospect, I can see what the heavy syrupiness was probably about. But, you know, why I called it transcendent dreaming was it really is a form of lucid dreaming where you awaken within a dream. And how it differs from lucid dreaming is that in lucid dreaming, you awaken within a dream and you have some control over the dream. There's expanded states of awareness, there's more luminosity, but you're always really separated from it. And uh, why I call this transcendent dreaming is it's a form of lucid dreaming, but what happens in that, as you awaken into the dream, is that there's this merging of the awareness into the energy behind the dream. And uh, where, there's a loss of the I or the me, a reality centric to a self. It's an expanded awareness where it's almost like perception and feeling are fused and you simply are the dream unfolding. There's no you, there's no dream. Uh, there's a communion or a state of unitive consciousness. And in that state, you know, many, many things can occur, including that these dreams materialize um, in our everyday reality. So it's a very different shift of our awareness, I think, than certainly in a normal dream, but also even lucid dreaming, which there's still a separation. Mm. Um, as most people who watch this program know, I've, I've been meditating for a long time, and um, but I would have to say that the, the most profound experiences I've ever had were actually in sleep or during dreams. And my wife says the same thing, that, and she's had some really profound things. And I, I guess that maybe the reason for that is that you're so innocent, all your defenses are down, you're completely open or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. would, you think that's why? I do believe that there's something in sleep that allows the way our perceptual filter looks at reality, it allows it to relax. And, our, and our, so our awareness uh, has more fluidity to it. And for myself, you know, why I, in the transcendent dream state it gets this heavy syrupy feeling is that's the place in the dreaming for myself where awareness is actually merging into the energy behind the forms in the dream. And so now there's a non-locality. It's simultaneously in the multiple forms. Um, and I've always said that dreaming at this level is not just in the mind or in the awareness, but it's also a bodily process. And the heavier, the more that syrupy feeling would come over, you could start to really feel energy coursing as though you've actually merged into a larger energy. Have you ever or do you even now maintain awareness, not through any sort of effort, but spontaneously, throughout the night during sleep 
or is it mainly just in these occasional dream things? I don't sleep very much, and when I do sleep, I'm aware I'm sleeping, so I'm awake all night long watching. But what's changed over the 10 years for me is it's, uh, it isn't that I'm not having transcendent dreams. I am. But they're now here in my waking reality. I, I think the difference is, I, I think it was an organic development and a remaking of consciousness. And I think it required sleep, essentially just to knock my awareness out and quiet my mind so that it could have these experiences. But with more meditation, as you well know, as you move into the quieting of the mind, the still, I say the stillness in the body and in every cell of the body, eternity is stamped at the deepest level of the cellular nature. And once awareness is attuned there without all of the surface noise, uh, once again, planes of realization open up and avail themselves. And I see them now in the waking state as much as I do in a dreaming state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reason I asked that question about maintaining awareness during sleep is that in a lot of different traditions there have been sages and realized beings who have described that the, the waking, dreaming, and sleeping states may cycle through, but pure awareness remains awake to itself throughout that cycle. And they even describe, I mean, there's one description that there's a sort of a gap between each state of consciousness as one transitions from sleeping to waking or from waking to sleeping or and so on. There's a little gap. Yeah. And, and that, that gap eventually becomes clearer and widens, uh, you know, and eventually sort of persists. You know, it's like the gap becomes the, the, the predominant thing and then the waking, dreaming, sleeping continue to cycle on. Oh, that's very, that's very interesting because I know for myself, even in the morning, if I'm just simply resting, there's a, there's a place in that resting where I'm interconnected to many things uh, at the same time. It's a, it's a feeling state. And, it, and it's really, uh, it's exquisite. It's, it, it's very, very nourishing. And I've come to not even want to awaken and go down a path of any thought because as soon as I do, it takes me out of that state. And I think that might be what you're calling the gap. And, uh, and, and then the rest of the day just never really can compare to that moment of, of a true interconnectedness on many, many different levels. Mm. Yeah, it can be a very intuitive time for people. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I get the story right, Thomas Edison used to take these little naps throughout the day and then have his assistants wake him up. And he would part of the reason he would do that is, is he would enter into that gap and then get creative ideas and breakthroughs in his, what he was trying to figure out as he dipped in and out of that gap state. Yes, yes. <clears throat> so when you say dreaming, in your book you say, dreaming really equates with consciousness. Usually when people think of dreaming, they think of all sorts of imaginative adventures that we have when we sleep. And that's a valid use of the word, but you're really equating it with pure consciousness, I think. Yes? I am. Sometimes I use the dreaming synonymous with the God force or Allah, or meaning it's the implicate order moving into the manifestation, uh, or that from the silence, uh, which is moving into manifesting in the world 
and then receding back out of the world. And I call that the dreaming. I also call it the substance of all that is. And that when our awareness is attuned there and and in every cell of the body is being nourished from from there, uh, consciousness is creating. And consciousness is creating through you in that moment in which you're in touch with the substance of all that is. So I call that the dreaming. It's a movement. Um, sometimes I call it the silence. Uh, and silence is not a closed silence. Silence is a is a substance, it's an intelligence, and it's coming out of the void to manifest, and it recedes back into the void. Yeah, here's a nice quote I lifted from your book. I think you may have attributed this to a Zen teacher. Um, The mind is structured in layers, as is the universe, from the superficial to the profound. Deeper layers are more powerful. Quiet the mind to know them. Mm Hmm. Yes, yes, that's from my sensei. Uh, my early on uh, fa- abysmal failing in Zen meditation, because <laughs> like many, I had a very active mind. She yeah, gets, Adi- Adishanti failed too. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and I still have an active mind. So, yeah, but yeah. It's, a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful quote, and I find that to absolutely be true. I find that. As we quiet the surface consciousness, the mind reaches a place of stillness. We reach another level of the mind that doesn't think at all and has the ability to have non-local experience, to be in multiple places at once, and to be fused with that experience. So it's not a place the mind can readily go. Yeah, let's dwell on this a bit. The The second and third verses of the Yoga Sutras are, the second verse is, um, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And mm. then the third verse is, and then the seer rests in, in himself or in itself. This notion of settling down the, the activity of the mind. Yeah, um, beautiful, it, beautiful. Yeah. And... I've always been taught and have understood and have experienced that the mind actually has a natural tendency to want to do that because more settled levels of mental activity are more charming, they're more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And so if, the, if we can find a means of allowing the, the mind to begin to settle down and yet not just fall asleep, but settle down and remain alert, then we encounter greater and greater charm as we go. And so the mind just sort of moves on to it without effort or without need for control or concentration. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's Mm. beautiful. I like that greater charm. That's absolutely right, right down to that equanimity and joy that one can experience when it all quiets. And, you know, I think, too, once someone has found a certain level of quietude, uh, it's almost aversive to have an active mind. Uh, because it requires so much bandwidth. It takes a, a tremendous <laughs> mm-hmm. amount of your energy. And what you get from it is really a surface consciousness. And so uh, I think there are great rewards as the mind quiets. Uh, you know, it's self-rewarding. Yeah, but that is not to say that a person wouldn't be able to write books and give lectures and travel and do this and that. It's just that the average mind thinks about uh, maybe a, a hundred thoughts in a minute, 99 of which are unnecessary or <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah, yeah and, it's, it's exhausting quiet, thinking yeah, about it. <laughs> using so much energy, you know. Whereas a quiet mind could 
just have maybe one thought in a minute, just to make a simple example, but it's actually the useful one among those, among those hundred. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was just talking yesterday to a, a 90-something-year-old gentleman who um, I'll be interviewing in December. Uh, he came on my radar when he got in touch with us, and he said, well, I'm in my 90s, and I have some sort of physical problem where they've had to amputate my feet and this and that. Uh, but he said, I'm, I've never been happier in my life, and everything's wonderful. And it turns out he was a designer of cars in the 50s. He designed the original Thunderbird and other things. As I was talking to him yesterday, he was saying, I, you wouldn't believe how much energy I have. He's, he's thinking of selling his home, buying an RV, and driving from South Carolina to California in his 90s. <laughs> yeah. So, but he's in this sort of awakened state where there's just this tremendous energy all the time. Absolutely. Once the bandwidth isn't taken up by our surface consciousness, there's tremendous amount of vitality in that stillness. And to me, that's what really, where different states of awareness, different planes of realization become available because you're right in the instant moment with all this quietude, with eternity on both sides, and the expanded presence of attention has nowhere to go, but in that instant moment to that which is, has been invisible before, with a tremendous amount of energy available to move there. This phrase, again, is worth repeating about deeper levels being more powerful and uh, quiet the mind to know them. I guess we could say do less and accomplish more or something if deeper levels are more powerful. I'm preparing for an uh, interview with Muji tomorrow, who's a well-known teacher, and he, he said in one of his talks that um, you know, someone who is really at peace with themselves, which would equate with the, being in tune with these deeper, more quiet levels, um, has a much bigger impact on the world than any politician or you know, treaty or anything else. You know, that, and that if, obviously if we could populate the world with more such people, then we would have... A peaceful world, but we're not just we're not going to do it on the level of politics and so on. If everybody's operating from an agitated level of mind, yeah, I'm I'm in complete agreement with that, and I believe when we're in the sometimes I call it that the pocket of silence, where the mind is very very still. It's where we access the substance of all that is, giving life everywhere. And to touch that current, it has tremendous vitality to it, which, in, which increases one's, um, I think, bandwidth, capacity, atmosphere. And when one is in communion or union with it, it really becomes its agent in its expression in the world. And it's all invisible, you know. It, it doesn't require doing anything because it's actually manifesting through you. Yeah, that's beautifully put. In fact, there's all sorts of verses in the ancient scriptures and modern people who, who talk this way about how they really have the sense that they're not doing anything. Everything is sort of being done automatically, and uh, they're just sort of residing in this relaxed state of oneness or witnessing or whatever and yes. nature is doing all the work yeah, yeah there's no door <laughs> yeah yeah nice okay 
there's a lot to talk to you about the whole your whole thing with the Carol Indians and and there were so many interesting stories in your in your book of you know various dreams that you had various experiences in where should we go next when we were doing the chronological thing a few minutes ago you mentioned that you know visionary dream about your father's yeah, prophetic death. Dream. prophetic that's the word mm-hmm. I'm looking for mm-hmm. and um, you were practicing Zen, you said, mm-hmm. and um, so what's the sig- next significant milestone for you? Probably my work with the Caro. Okay, and what, what attracted you to go down there? What, I mean, how'd you even, I had never heard of the Caro Indians until I read your book. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of them either, and it's funny that you would ask that question. It's kind of a, you know, in retrospect, you can think on one hand you're getting involved with something from a linear perspective, but for myself, it's really clear that the dreaming brought it, my relationship with the Caro to me. And um, really shortly after my father's death, I had a dream where I was sitting in an English pub getting ready to come back to the United States, and um, there were three men and a woman that were sitting at a high-top table with me, and underneath was a a large wooden box, two feet by five feet. And one of the men asked if I, this is prior to 9-11, asked if I would bring this wooden box to the United States. And um, I'm like, obviously I need to see what's in it before I'm willing to uh, bring it to the United States. And um, so two of the men wandered off, went to the restroom. He opened up the wooden box, and at the time, I didn't realize it was an Incan mummy. But as he opened it up, it was a full mummy um, adorned in gold. Wow. And um, Try getting that through customs. Try getting that through customs, yeah. <laughs> and, and I knew as he closed the, the wooden latch in the dream time, like there's in my, inside of me, there was this incredible resistance of there's no way I am bringing that to the United States. And I awoke from the dream. And then within six months, I was in the Andes, um, traveling there because of my interest in shamanic cultures, and met the Indians for the very first time, who happened to be descendants of the Inca. And uh, so... It wasn't serendipitous, you know. Uh, the dreaming clearly brought this resonance or something that we shared in common together. And I've worked with them now for 25 years. They're a dying culture. You know, they hold a prophecy. They're coming down off of the mountain. But what's even more interesting about that dream was when I met my editor for Transcendent Dreaming, That was 14 years after that dream. And when I saw her picture, she was the woman in the dream. And she's the one who edited this book on the dreaming. And so the lovely part about these expanded states of awareness and non-local states of awareness is you, you start to see the connectivity, the interconnection um, that we just simply cannot understand uh, from the place of the rational mind. Yeah. Even though we can't understand it, have you ever 
made an attempt to explain the mechanics of it? Or do you just throw up your hands and say it can't be explained? I do both. <laughs> I do both because I'm quite fascinated by it, you know, of yeah. course. And at the same time, I know better than to believe in anything because yeah. it just limits and gives me a perceptual filter to see the world in, which is very confining. So I say I like to play in ideas. Um, I like to ground these experiences with quantum physics, even though I don't know a lot about quantum physics because it seems to be the model that best holds the experiences. Yeah. Yeah, some physicists get a little annoyed with new agey types trying to use physics to explain their experiences, but yeah. Yeah. at the same time, there are a lot of physicists who are very progressive and, and are you know, devoting most of their time trying to draw the connection between physics and consciousness and you know, mystical states and so on. You know, I'd like to... Um uh, stay with more of a phenomenological approach, which is, this is simply my experience. This is what it feels like in the cellular nature of my body. This is what my mind feels like when I'm in this state. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it's all I know to be true. Yeah. So, you know, these days, going down to South America and working with native cultures is all the rage, and it mostly involves ayahuasca. I mean, did your work with the caro involve plant medicines like that, or mm -hmm. was it a, of a different nature? Um, the caro don't use any plant medicines. You know, they're mm -hmm. of the high Andes. Most of the plant medicines, the ayahuasca, San Pedro, come down from the Amazonian uh, traditions. I certainly don't need to use plant medicines. I might be afraid to use a plant medicine, yeah. <laughs> given the fluidity of my own uh, consciousness. Things are working for you pretty well without yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm feeling like I don't need that in this lifetime, for sure. So what does it mean, then, to have been initiated as a medicine woman? The Caro have a set of transmissions that, interestingly, some say are the keys and processes of who are becoming 100,000 years from now. And they're all energetic transmissions. The Caro are very interesting people because they don't live in linear time. If you are with them, they never talk about the past. They don't talk about what just happened two minutes ago. And mm -hmm. they don't talk about the future. They're Do they have past and future tenses in their language? They don't. Oh, okay. they, they don't. And really, language is, is more like Sanskrit in that it's, it has a sensuality and a vibrational quality to it that mirrors the land. Uh, and the other fascinating thing about the Kerala is they don't have a sense of self of I or a me. So they are a community and they're very, very inclusive. So they live in a state of varying degrees of unity consciousness, depending on, you know, whether it's your tribal people or your medicine peoples. Uh, that's, that's so very different than our own. And, uh, they are considered or have been considered by many to be essential masters of the energy realm. And indeed, it is their primary reality. You know, the material re reality is secondary to them. It, 20 years ago, a Ziploc baggie was a phenomenon to them. So, you know, at, at, they live all between 18 and 22,000 feet, which is above the tree line. There's nothing up there. It, it's three days by horseback to get there. So there's a monastic quality to it. And 
you know, unfortunately or fortunately, like many indigenous cultures, they are now a dying culture. They're coming down off that mountain. The traditions are changing. And most of my time spent with them has really been about uh, how to simply walk with them as they are a dying culture. Mm. Why would you say fortunately? Uh, because I don't, I think that there are larger rhythms coming out of the void uh, where, you know, everything has to die. Uh, you know, our species will die. Our planet will die. Everything has to have its full fruition and blossom and die. And I really absolutely um, honor those rhythms, even though I may not understand them. Yeah. Do they see themselves as representative of what humanity may be 100,000 years from now, or they just have a vision of that, which isn't necessarily the way they live? It's not necessarily the way they live, although you're, all the master medicine peoples are now uh, dead. And they were, even 10 years ago, they were in their 80s and 90s. There were about five remaining. And they had that level of consciousness. You know, they... Their job, you know, one's job was to sit in prayer for the planet. That's what his, you know, his vocation was. And in um, the transmissions, which are energetic transmissions, there are these increasing transmissions of seeking communion and stewardship, whether it be with the earth or with the stars, and eventually to the energy behind creation. And uh, those energetic transmissions are taken very seriously. So describe a little bit more the nature of your work with them. You know, what sorts of disciplines or something you were going through, what sorts of experiences you were having. Yeah, just the whole experience of being down there all that time. Did you learn their language, or were you using a translator, or was language not so necessary? Uh, a little bit of all, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the most early on interesting pieces of being, just simply being with them was the inability to speak the language and that so much of how they work and move is from an energetic perspective. And if you, if you ever have the opportunity to just simply be with a people for an extended period of time, you, you're held in that field or that resonance and it, it kind of starts to rub off on you. Um, so I, I think it's maybe the best way to learn you know, it's just like it's the best way to learn a foreign language. Um, so early on, I would use a, a translator. Um, but very quickly, and because so much of the initiating into the medicine is really energetic transmission, working with the forces of nature, uh, language wasn't wasn't the way that it was was going to unfold. Also, I think they recognized my innate dreaming essence. They are not dreamers per se in that way, and yet we had a way of moving in the world that from, we just, we, we got there from different places. They got there from nature, you know, and I got there from dreaming, but there was a simultaneity and appreciation in that. So I, even though I've been through the initiations, even though I taught Andean shamanism for 25 years, I never really saw myself as working with them. 
I saw myself watching a culture die and simply being very present to that at a really concrete level. But working with them for 25 years, there must have been something that really engaged your interest. I, I presume you weren't there nonstop for 25 years. You must have gone back and forth. But yes, yes. But something, something that kept bringing you back. I mean, so what, what were you actually experiencing that you found so intriguing, you know, so worth, uh, so worth you know, several decades of your life? This concept of something they call Munye, M-U-N-A-Y, Munye, uh, and it probably at its lowest frequency it means love, but at the highest frequency it means dissolving the I into the one. So it's not it's not unlike Namaste. Uh, uh, they are a people who live in unity consciousness. They live and they breathe it, and they are their hearts are some of the purest hearts I've ever experienced on the planet um, and such a humble agricultural people you know at 18 to 22,000 feet infant mortality is very high and they live on 70 varieties of potato there's nothing that grows up there and so every day is a is is a communion in silence it's a meditation in silence and in simple living and yet in a unit of experience because there is no I in that culture. <laughs> you know, you can't bring medicine for alpaca for one of the, you know, they have five small villages and they're all about a day and a half apart. You can't bring for just one village. They, they don't recognize and will not take a gift unless it's for all. Even small children will bring a piece of candy back to the entire family. Hmm. It's a, uh, they live differently on the planet. And, and so the attraction to you is that you were kind of imbibing the unity state of consciousness by osmosis, by proximity to them or something, right? I think so. It, it was very reminiscent of transcendent dreaming and the states that uh, occur in transcendent dreaming. And um, that purity of heart um, was very early on a soul moment for me i i knew the first time i had to come back from there that 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 we needed we needed that in north america that this essence needed to be, to be brought back to north america and it makes me go that's probably what that dream was about where i was like hell no i'm not taking that mummy <laughs> because i just wept the first time i left there knowing how daunting it felt to have experienced what I had experienced there and what it would mean to bring that to the United States, to bring it to communities, to bring it forward. And, you know, it's been three decades of my life of serving there. Yeah, I mean, that's the first thought that came to my mind uh, was how in the world do you... There's a phrase that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to use that knowledge crumbles on the hard rocks of ignorance. First thought came to my mind was how in the world do you take something from that culture that is so removed from our modern world and introduce it in, into the modern world without having it completely fall flat? You that's, know, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So it's how, a, how it's, do you? How yeah, did you? Yeah. How do you? Um, yes, because 
you know, expanded states of awareness that they naturally live in. In the West, you have to find ways, experiential ways to train that, um, to provide that experience for someone. And, you know, my first 20 years of teaching were about finding the experiential exercises along with the energetic transmissions, along with just bringing... uh, students and voyagers and consciousness back into relationship and interconnected with the earth. But after 20 years of that, and after really coming to a place where I felt like I couldn't offer one more experiential, where it simply felt as though somebody was becoming intoxicated off of the experiential, I turned my teaching to, let's move to silence. No, no experientials. Let's move to quietude. Let's move to what it means to have ever-increasing presence of attention in the stilling of the mind and the body because it brings the same state. And that feels closer, actually, to uh, the Carolindians and their transmissions and prophecies. Well, when you say that people were becoming intoxicated with the experiential... If you read your book and all the dreams you had, it's some pretty far out experiences. Were you saying that people that you were teaching were becoming intoxicated by flashy experiences and looking for those and trying for those and so on, whereas they were missing the point because the silence is the really important thing? Is that what you just said? Uh, what, what, I, what I said is that early on, in order to give people experiences and expanded states of awareness, I would use an experiential. But within doing an experiential exercise, whether it was journeying, whether it, I mean, there's various ways to offer experiential where you're participatory and you're you're actually allowing someone, uh, teaching someone how to expand awareness. But, but over the years, it felt as though, one, they couldn't hold that state, and two, they were just looking for the intoxication. More recently, meaning the last five years, I've just really come to this place of I'm done with experientials and people seeking intoxication. Uh, if if you're interested in a remaking of consciousness, of moving from separation to unity, we're going to do it through understanding silence and the power of silence. And it feels more organic to the teachings of the Carol who sit in silence all the time, and prayer. Yeah, I think probably everybody gets that point. You know, I mean, flashy experiences are transitory. They can't last. That's Enlightenment right. is not a flashy experience. That's you know, it's not, it's, it's not like one big perpetual flashy experience. Yeah. Uh, and I also, yeah. I also think that there's a place with that quietude and the silence that comes with long years of meditation that allow you to hold the new tremendous amount of energy that becomes available and the new planes of realization that open up. And if you're offering an experiential and you get that opening, but you still have all this surface consciousness and noisiness, it it creates a lot of tumult in an individual. And so I I think that silence is really a fundament. Yeah, it's an important point, I think. Silence is definitely a fundament. And also... Something you just alluded to, I think, is the necessity of culturing the, the nervous system or the container in order to um, really sustain that silence and that, that experience. Mm-hmm. I, I often 
hear from people who have uh, had some sort of kundalini awakening or some sudden influx of energy or something which they weren't prepared for. And you know, they have to quit their jobs. They, they become incapacitated in various ways. It's just like too much for them to handle. I think there's some wisdom in understanding that the, the nervous system is the vehicle through which anything is lived. And something so radical as, as enlightenment really necessitates a radical transformation of the nervous system. And this whole idea of instantly popping into it and sustaining it is rather unrealistic. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree. And I, I do think there is an organic development that arises naturally if you don't push the system. Yeah, it's important. Safety first. <laughs> Since we're talking about you know the South American traditions and so on, and we've alluded, not in your case, but we've alluded to the use of ayahuasca and so on, I was preparing for the Muji thing the other day, and someone asked him about ayahuasca, and he said, well, you know, does it last? It's just this sort of temporary thing. And, you know, you really should be looking for that which lasts. Which is not to say that, you, you know, you might have a beautiful meditation and you feel great. And the, it, but even, even then there's some, there's some culturing of the nervous system which takes place. And to a degree that um, that's the, the physiology has changed and is more capable of sustaining that, that state. But if one does things that are sort of sudden or abrupt or premature or perhaps chemically in- induced, uh, it, it gets a little bit more risky. I, th- I think so, too. I, I also think f- for some, there's, there's a place because it's, it's the beginning of an opening for them, you know, yeah. that, that maybe they might not have had otherwise. It was for me. I mean, I, I, you know, I first did that stuff in the 60s. I thought, oh, wow, this, there's a lot more to life than I realized. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's a nice preview of possibility. And I, and I also, you know, I think as, that we're all here as a shard of light, you know, from the Godhead or God force. And, and each essence is here for a different reason and to hang out at different planes of realization. And... Um, I, and I, you know, I always say to my students, you know, if you're drawn to unity consciousness, it's like the moth to the flame. It's you apparently in this lifetime, that development is organically unfolding because of the longing or the desire. And uh, of course, there are many paths to up the mountain. So yeah, no, that's a great point, and and I don't mean to belittle anyone's path, including ayahuasca and stuff like that. I mean, some people have benefited from it a lot. Uh, and there are all sorts of paths. Some people say, well, there's actually seven and a half billion paths to God, <laughs> you know, as many of as there are people on, on the earth. So, yeah, I'm glad you made that, that clarification. But like you, Rick, I do think, and I get pushback um, from, you know, some of my really longtime students, you know, who, you know, are faculty and MDs and attorneys and but they've been voyaging in consciousness for 30 years. And, uh, you know, in moving to this notion of that you can find these planes of realization and expanded states and unity consciousness, the organic emergence of it, through silence, there is a stage in the layering the folds of quieting the mind, and you've heard many mystics, artists speak of it, where because the mind becomes quiet, the there's an emptiness, we call it emptiness or nothingness, where 
there's no desire, there's no uh, longing, there's no passion necessarily out here in the everyday world. It's a true quiet desert of nothingness. And I don't think plant medicine allows you to organically feel that, stay in that state while being in our everyday world and recognize its true value and and that where it's going to lead you to next. It doesn't lead you back into the surface consciousness. You still live that as your primary language, but it leads you to uh, really being in connection with that the substance of all that is that is manifest every day in the world emerging and bringing things back you know into the void. So it's that moment of both creation and destruction simultaneously happening of which your awareness is witnessing in the state of nothingness because it, there's not all this noise here. And it's also the place where the eye begins, the reality centric to a self begins to dissolve. There's no center in that space and you start to move participatory in the space. I, I think plant medicines make it don't train that piece of the organic development. And uh, it's the part that allows you to be sane in the world. You know? So in other words, they don't enable you to tap into that most fundamental level of silence. They, there's still something going on in a, in a rather dramatic way. Is that what you're saying? I think, unfortunately, here in the West, for most, they decide to have the experience... You know, they work a 60-hour, 70-hour a week. It's planned for a Friday afternoon. They've done their, you know, the, the purification for the week. They have the experience, and they go right back into our everyday world and moving at that, that speed of light at the surface consciousness. And that state of emptiness and nothingness is never really developed. Yeah, good point. There's a... This little story in the Upanishads or someplace that, you know, this master tells his disciple to go and get him a banyan seed. And so he gets the banyan seed and, and he says, okay, now break it open. And he breaks it open. He said, what do you see inside? And he said, it's hollow. I, I see nothing. And he said, well, it's out of that hollowness that this whole big banyan tree arises. And the teaching being that, you know, all of this comes out of silence and that if you really want to get you know, to the foundation of it, that foundation is going to be silent and empty in its nature. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. <clears throat> I mean, I think people go through phases. What you just said about dispassion and, and you know, flat, maybe flatness, I don't know if you use that word, but people do go through a phase where they, they may feel kind of emotionless or flat or yeah, they dispa- do. Dis, 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 disinterested or dispassionate. Mm-hmm. It's just a phase. It's not, you it know, is. It is. Yeah. It is. I, you know, I often liken it or, or think of it as if your true heart center is based on the everyday surface consciousness, you know, the news feeds, the Facebooks, the, you know, and, and, and that's what you're passionate about. Well, when you suddenly find something that isn't, that's a larger reality that's underneath that, you don't immediately know how to fall in love with that or to be passionate about it. And yet, at the same time, you're realizing it offers a little bit, maybe more than where your passion was at before. And so, like you said, I, I think that there's this 
uh, amount of time really where the old passion is dying off in order for a new passion to avail itself and it, and students are very uncomfortable there yeah which always happens i mean you know the the caterpillar must think oh my god i'm turning to mush what's yeah. happening to me you know yeah. but that's the necessary phase to go through to, to become the butterfly right and those imaginal cells that are right. developing are all rotting the you know the caterpillar's nervous system so it's uncomfortable <laughs> yeah i think another thing that fits in here is if you think of that as a phase that it, it's important to realize that pretty much everything is a phase. I mean, there's, there's going to be ongoing development for vast majority of people and never sort of freak out and think that, oh my God, I'm becoming like this and I'm always going to be like this and, and I don't want to be like this. And, you know, just realize this, you know, it's a stage. You want to comment on that? I could say more, but I shouldn't talk too much. I would be in agreement. I might also add that I often, you know, when people want to define enlightenment or define awakening to myself there's never really an end to awakening I think had the Buddha lived longer it would awaken to even greater levels of reality you know or Christ or that it's that this this beautiful mind that we have that has the capacity to move from the finite into the infinite you know, that infinite is very, very large, and I think we can forever be exploring that in the cellular nature of the body. I think the one thing that happens is that, and I was just discussing this with somebody the other day, that there is a dimension of life which doesn't change or evolve. You know, we could call it the absolute if we wished, and and so it's not going to get shinier or improved or, or something like that. But our interface with that, our ability to live that, to express that, our, our capacity as a sentient being to embody, you know, that reality, how could there be an end to that? Absolutely. So when people say that, you know, there are no levels or stages or anything, that's true of the absolute. But is it really true of our human experience? Can you show me an example of anyone, you know, who doesn't continue to go through greater refinement mm-hmm. and so on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, feel free. To, if anything pops into your head, and I'm not asking you, feel free to, uh, you know, just say it or get into it. Maybe we'll come back to, back to this. The point I was about to make towards the end of the interview, like how you actually work with people and how you, you know, help them to get into that silence and so on. But before we do that, let's continue on. And uh, there was. This is going to belie what we were just saying about the silence and not dwelling on flashy experiences, but there were some very interesting experiences you had that you recount in your book, various dreams. Um, For instance, there was one in chapter 2, which you entitled Crossing the Threshold to Ordinary Reality, in which you said, I became a midwife for those who were crossing over into the spirit realm, people and animals, and for people in comas. What was that all about exactly? You remember that? I do remember that, yes. I had a period in uh, Transcendent Dreaming where uh, repeatedly I would enter the dreaming, awaken the dreaming, my consciousness would expand uh, into a place where it it felt as though it were limitless. Um, It was really pure awareness and that I would be taken to this place where in the cellular nature of my body, 
it felt as though the cellular nature was dissolving or eternity was unfolding in the cells of my body. I, I, I felt like I was going to die to the body. And in these repetitive dreams, I would be held in abeyance in that space of uh, pure awareness, but also aware in the body that the cellular nature felt as though it were dissolving. And, um, and it had this, like many people speak about, uh, being at that threshold, it was ve- very exquisite. Uh, because I was held in abeyance, it was very fatiguing. It was very fatiguing. So, define the word abeyance for those whose language isn't, first language mm-hmm. isn't in English. I was, felt like I was straddling the threshold. And so I wasn't going over the threshold, um, but I couldn't pull myself back, and it was exhausting to be there uh, because in the physical body, that dissolving at the what felt like you know it's a fe- feeling experience or eternity. So this vastness happening in the cells of the body, um, I, w- I was enduring essentially, and um, I saw it as a tremendous time in my dreaming of expansion of consciousness. Like it, like it was it was teaching me to hold greater expanded states of awareness. And it was also at that time that I just naturally, I had clients that were beginning to pass away, you know, pets. You know, it's always funny how you you end up being somewhere consciously and then resonance has an affinity and people start to seek you out. Because I had been in the community uh, and had been in a major medical center, many primary care physicians, uh, family practice physicians referred to me some of whom were my friends of whom knew I was having these expanded states of awareness. And so one of my friends is a family doc here, uh, asked me one time to come in. Uh, I've done it more than once now. Uh, for major traumas, usually where it's a, a young adolescent or young adult, male or female, almost always in an automobile accident, and they're on life support and the family is there long distance. And really, as a, to provide comfort for the family, and um, uh, to be able to be in that place uh, of quieting down, and to commune with the consciousness of the young adult, uh, for a better understanding of where it is at, that actually gives the family some relief as they're trying to make very difficult decisions. Does the person's soul kind of tell you whether it's ready to move on or wants to come back or that, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, um, it, run, it runs the gamut. Often uh, it's a state of confusion, uh, and it's just hanging kind of in the bardo, hanging there. Um, there are other times it absolutely does not want to return. Um, and I never have, my role has never been to assist it. My role has really been to come in and to meet it and be in communion with it. And do they know you're there, that, that soul? Do they, they realize that someone in the earth plane is tuning into them? And so, Sometimes, not uh-huh. all the time. And I would say most of the time, not. There's, there's a fair amount of distress in that place. Yeah. Are you able to help s- soothe them in some way or clear up their confusion? Or 
If I stay there long enough, it can help yeah. settle the energy so that um, so that action takes place. Mm-hmm. So I really see my consciousness is just lending as a catalyst or a generator yeah. for that other consciousness to move between the manifest world or you know the unmanifest. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But more, do you still do this stuff, or was that back in the day when before you've gone through other changes? I do it on occasion. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You haven't lost the ability. I have not lost the ability. Mm-hmm. No. Um, interesting. Um, now, there was another chapter in which you said, you, you entitled, Piercing the Illusion of Time and Space. And there was a story about a, a man you were having, din- a dream you had had about a boy who had polio. And uh, you, wanna, you know what I'm getting at. You wanted to just relate that story quickly rather than me tell it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this story, even when I was reading it last night, I thought, wow, I still don't understand, you know. You know, once you collapse linear time, I don't understand how, you know, things unfold. But in this dream, I had a, again, transcendent dream, awakened within the dream, and um, I am actually merging into a, a young boy who's walking home from school, and uh he has polio. He has one brace on and he's got the other one off. He's whipping it like this and he's walking home from school. And I just stay with him in the dream and uh, through the dinner hour. And then um, he's getting ready for bed and his father takes him into the bathroom to get him ready for bed. And they go through all the normal brushing of the teeth. And But eventually his, his father actually um, has him take his pants off, he takes his pants off, and he has his son touch his penis. And as I'm in that dream, I'm really, my awareness is simply communal with a boy, but in that moment, as often happens in transcendent dreaming, everything kind of slows way down, and you kind of merge again into the consciousness of both in that experience, and at the same time, I absolutely knew that there was a there was a catalyst to my with my awareness being with a boy that was 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 guiding him spiritually guiding him. And uh, I also recall in that dream feeling if I were to leave this, and this is right after the the death dreams where. Uh, I think I mentioned I'd lost a lot of affection for life because that other was so enticing and I hadn't returned to my affection for life. So in my dream time, it was always hard to figure out where I belonged. You know, should I stay? It's a funny thing intellectually, but as a spiritual guide to this child, that felt more propelling than my everyday life. Or do I spin out of the dream, which I didn't, I don't have a lot of, uh, uh, control uh, to do because I'm dissolved into it, and um, I finally did come back out of the dream. S- thought that was that was odd, but understood it as that I'm being now my consciousness is being in multiple places, and the experience of that and the feelings of different places. And then we segue to many years later, and um, a male friend of mine whom. Uh, had lost his father, had asked me to go out to dinner. And, um, you know, we sat in a booth, we had dinner, and he asked, said, I, I have some unresolved business with my father. Uh, I'm wondering if you could recommend a male therapist. And um, 
I said, well, tell me a little bit more. And it ended up that it was about sexual abuse. And so I referred him to a therapist. And when we went to leave the restaurant, um, he kind of hinged uh, as he got out. And he sat his hand on the table and he said, you know, I had polio as a child. And uh, so it's sometimes hard for me to move. Um, and in that moment, I absolutely knew that, yeah, yeah. And my brain still to this day doesn't make sense of the linearity of that. Uh, and yet I've known this guy now for 30 years, have moved back to Minneapolis three times, and I've deathed everyone in his family. Using death as a verb, you mean you've You've been, been there when, when people in his family have died in order to ease, help the transition? Is that what you mean? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Thank you. Interesting. Then there's another one about a motorcycle accident where you had this dream where you were cradling someone's hands, someone's head in your hands because she didn't have a helmet on and she was on the back of a motorcycle and it was going through an accident. And then well, you, you take the story from there. <laughs> This dream reminds me of the levels of connection that we're unaware of. Yeah, in this dream, again, it's a transcendent dream, I actually reconfigure only into a pair of hands. So my awareness is simply a, a set of hands as a woman is catapulting off of a, a motorcycle. And I see her boyfriend, husband, um, very seriously injured. And I'm just these hands that catch her head before it hits the pavement and I'm there until the emergency responders come and then all of a sudden I dissolve out of the dream time and you know I have hundreds of dreams like this 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 is not uncommon Um, it was several years later a colleague of mine said to me I want to refer someone to one of your shamanic workshops but she's become a fundamental Christian and I always am very curious what makes anyone fundamental. And uh, so I inquired about why this woman had become fundamental. And then she relayed to me. She had this experience with what she thinks was a guiding angel. Guiding, yeah, guiding, guiding angel. angel. Guiding yeah. angel. Um, and then she recounted the motorcycle accident and that the woman said that she felt a pair of hands behind her head, and it was there all up until the emergency responders came, and then it dissolved. And um, I never met the woman. She never came you know, to come see me. Uh, ha- had she, I probably would not have said anything about it. I wonder that, if she's read your book. Yeah, I know, I know. Experiences like that, that, and as I was writing Transcendent Dreaming, that made me think, We may all be having these experiences every day, but not have conscious awareness of it. That this is simply the quantum realm, and what comes out of the silence manifesting through us, but that our awareness doesn't touch in there. And uh, and then if that's the case, you know what that really means. You know, it's one thing to suddenly be given awareness. But I suspect this might be going on all the time. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because I'm getting these stories out of you not to just you know, provide entertainment for people to think, oh, here's another flashy experience for you to yeah, listen to, but that there's to kind of bring awareness to the notion that there's a deeper mechanics 
to creation that is going on all the time, as you just said, and, and that what we ordinarily experience is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and I think there's a value in appreciating that, you know, to, in realizing that there's a deeper mechanics, that there's a, a sort of a more fundamental intelligence that interconnects everything and that orchestrates and coordinates mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. on. The universe, I don't know, not that we're all going to have those kind of experiences, but somehow just it's one of those things that if it's, if it's part of your fundamental understanding of life, it, it really does change life, changes the way you live. And, you know, I, I will often say to my students, you know, the tragedy of awareness is that if we refuse to look at something, it can't reach us. And, you know, again, until our awareness, the bandwidth of our awareness finds a place to hang out besides just the surface, it's going to be very, very difficult to understand these other perceptual states that actually may be going on all the time in the deeper mind of everyone. Another way of thinking about it is, you know, if we are just on the surface and yet there's this deeper sort of organization taking place all the time, um, chances are we're going to be kind of out of tune with it most of the time because we're oblivious to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we could expand our awareness so as to incorporate those deeper levels of intelligence that are that are functioning and you know that are coordinating the universe then perhaps we could be so in tune with them as to elicit their support or spontaneously their cooperation you know how it is that some people say that you know they, they get up on the wrong side of the bed and nothing goes right well maybe that's just because you're not in tune with with what na with what nature is trying to do yeah. um, <laughs> and if you could be so attuned then this coincidence happens and you meet that person just at the right time and this this the telephone rings and it's just the you know right, there's this right. sort of synchronicity that that characterizes your life mm -hmm. well I also I, I like that the image and you know you're giving the image of the iceberg you know where you just have this surface but underneath there's this fundament of something far greater in the deeper mind that doesn't really even think at all it, it actually is participatory and experiences directly and it's a larger reality and probably don't know this to be true it's of a higher order meaning that when one consciousness is there uh, there's much more patience equanimity for all the surface chop and check you know, and wave, because there's a higher order underneath it. That's a good point. Yeah, patience and equanimity. Kind of a, a tolerance also, I'd say. And, and allowing things to play out. Not being passive, but allowing, but recognizing the wisdom of the, of the, the unfoldment of things as they're unfolding and, and being patient and cooperative with that rather than trying to jerk it this way and that, you know, prematurely or abruptly. I, and I also wonder in that larger reality, I know for myself, I can't speak for others, there's, when you're in the experience of the higher order, uh, not through the mind, but through participation, uh, there's no personal will to want to influence uh, it's the non, it's non-doing. It's non-action. 
where there's action actually unfolding, but there's no will with a desire of an outcome. And so it's it, that in and of itself is a different way to live in the world. Mm. Yeah, let thy will be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those, you know, in the Advaita mode of thinking about things, um, you know, this all may seem a little bit, you know, full of details that they don't usually consider but you know the point that we are we are essentially that 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 deeper reality is our true nature um there's a great verse in the rig veda someplace 10th mandala or something where it says that you sound like you sound like me it's somewhere over here (laughs) (laughs) it says it says that all the impulses of intelligence that govern creation, that structure and govern creation, reside in the transcendent field. And it says that, you know, those who don't know that field, what can those impulses do for them? Um, And the implication is that those who do know that field, uh, they can receive the cooperation and support of all those impulses of intelligence, which are ultimately within you, Mm -hmm. within the larger reality of what you are. Uh, But if you're divorced from that larger reality, then you're sort of... um, you're divorced from their assistance and their support. Yes, yes, that's well stated. And, you know, I sometimes think about at the cellular nature and at the atom, so at the microscopic level, you know, where those little vortices go into a vacuum of silence, right, that that energy in every atom of the body, you know, a hundred trillion times nine, that energy inside every one of us is the same energy that is simultaneously organizing galaxies and fields of sunflowers. And if one can bring their awareness to touch that, it changes how you move in the world. Beautiful. It reminds me of that thing in the Bible where Christ says, consider the lilies of the field, how they toil not, and you know they don't worry about tomorrow and all that, but even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And if God's going to take care of the lilies, he'll, yeah, he'll take care of you. All right, all right, all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful point. It's, it's that, that we are the intelligence that, that is... Or that can is orchestrating and permeating every every iota of the creation from the subatomic to the galactic, and you know we we're part and parcel of that. Yes, and we can anchor our awareness there. Which, yeah, yeah. Which is a kind of a radical thought to many. Yeah, oh, it's an it's an inspiring thought. Um, a fellow named Ron Williams from Seattle. Incidentally, anybody in Seattle, uh, Susanna Marie is offering a retreat this weekend. You could still come to part of it, look at her website. But a fellow named Ron Williams from Seattle asks a question, mm-hmm. uh, was there ever a point in your life when you considered yourself a seeker? Or is this awareness in which you now live a natural occurrence? Mm. You know what he means by that? Yeah, beautiful okay. question. Beautiful Good. question. Mm. Boy, it's it's not an either or, or or even a both and. Um, I've I've never thought of myself as a seeker. 
I feel as though because spontaneously I was having expanded states of awareness that I couldn't go find a teacher or read in a book. Early on, I surrendered into the dreaming as my teacher. And so... You know, was I the seeker or was I being, was seeking, was I, the, was it seeking? I, I don't know because mostly I was hanging on by my fingernails, uh, trying to maintain some semblance of normalcy without being able to find it in a book or a teacher. Now, would I have traded the experience? No, I would not have. Um, meaning, I knew. This is exactly where I was supposed to be. I, I think that most of us would, many, many people would trade their situation for yours <laughs> in the sense that many people sort of come at it from life is kind of drab and humdrum and, and routine and, and not that fulfilling and, and they sure would like to, you know, dip into all this spiritual glory that everybody talks about and that, that you read about in books and so on and, and I, but I'm not having experiences and when is it ever going to happen for me and they, they go through this kind of seeker phase for a long time mm -hmm. striving and striving and yearning for that and you know I, you know seeking you shall find eventually people do move out of those phases if, if they are sincere about it but you, you kind of came about it the other way around where you started having these profound experiences from the outset and then tried to begin to make sense of them, I think. Yeah, I think I probably came in the door backwards. But to, <laughs> to Ron's question, it also brings up, you know, is there a difference between seeking and longing? And, and um, you know, I think the, the seeker often has longing. But I think there are also a number of people who don't, necessarily seek but the longing you know what is longing you know it, it's something in a greater will or in the essence uh, that is wanting to move towards something and whether we do that consciously or unconsciously I think it runs the gamut yeah I draw a distinction between seeking and longing and exploration there does seem to be a point at which the longing, gnawing, unfulfilled quality drops off. And so you're no longer a seeker in that sense, like, I've got to have this or I'm going to die. But the thrill and, and fascination of the exploration mm -hmm. continues, the, the adventure of discovering more about life. Mm -hmm. Here's a question that came in from Mark Peters in Santa Clara. Mark always sends in a question. Do you have any sense what it is that binds local consciousness to a particular body? That is, after your point of view has temporarily shifted to another person's perspective, what is it that ultimately draws it back to your body? Mm -hmm. These are wonderful questions. Yeah, better than the ones I can think of, so thanks for sending them in, folks. <laughs> I do wonder, you know, since I wrote Transcendent Dreaming almost a decade ago, how I might have uh, answered it then. I can only answer it now from a place where, you know, I think I, in the book I use language of entering someone else's body, another form, another being, another plant. But uh, over time, with these states happening in, a, in more of a waking state, 
it comes out of the silence and it's actually inside my own being it's it's not outside of my being so it, to me it's a, a vastness that opens up again it's a a feeling state where there's a kind of a dissolution in the cellular nature and there's a vastness and suddenly I am the experience. There is a loss of an eye in the space. There's no centric piece of the space. You're just kind of like, it's the difference between uh, being a flower and being the fragrance. You know, the fragrance can be in multiple places at once and you're just simply aware there. And so I don't, in that moment, I don't think of my body as separate. There, it's simply an experience. But there is this, uh, that vastness starts to contract and then eventually I'm, I'm back with my own personal experience. Kind of reminds me, I'll, I'll tell this story quickly. There's a story of Shankara where Shankara would go around the country and have these debates with all these different people. And the tradition was that if you debated and you won the debate, then that person would become your disciple and his, his students would become your disciples also. So he was pretty good at that. And uh, Shankar was the, the sort of the founder of Advaita. And um, there was some, some woman who was a renowned sage and she, she challenged Shankar to a debate. But somehow or other the, the topic or something had to do with relationships and romantic love and so on, which Shankar knew nothing about being a monk. So he had to kind of learn about that to win the debate, but he was a monk, and so he had his vows and all. And so there was a, a, some king who was just dropping the body, and Shankara, using, his, using the, a certain siddhi, occupied the body of the king. And Shankara's body stayed in a cave guarded by his disciples. So the king wakes up and gets back into his activity, and, and the, you know, the king's wife is like impressed because this guy is now so bright and used to be so bright. <laughs> and so Shankar kind of goes through this month or so in living this life and ha- having this whole experience. But then somehow the queen got onto the notion that this was actually not my original husband, this sage, <laughs> this is sage who's doing this. And I, I think I'll just get rid of his body so I can keep, keep this, you know, my king with this bright, new found brightness. So she sent out people to go and destroy Shankara's body. And um, as this was about to happen, some of Shankara's disciples came to the palace and began to chant to the king, who had begun to sort of forget who he really was, uh, these verses that Shankara himself had written about the true nature of the self and all. And so Shankara somehow realized what was happening, and the king's body dropped dead. Shankara went back into his body, which was about to be burned by some emissaries of the queen, and he popped up to life again and lived happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer even better. I love your kitty cat there. No, is she? Yeah, this is this yeah. is Sweet Pea right here. Hi, Sweet Pea. And I actually have Bodhi, who's named after the Buddha, but he must be elsewhere. <laughs> Great. Okay, Dream Seven. There was a dream in which uh, it was entitled "Reconfiguring Energy," and you you began to have this phase of your life where the increased luminosity of internal and external objects mm-hmm. you mentioned. And there was actually this this dialogue with with Jesus that took place, and and there's more that I want to say from this chapter, but maybe you could start by just elaborating on that that bit a little, if you remember. Help help me remember. I okay. Recall. Well, okay. I'll just continue on, and then you kick in mm-hmm. as soon as. It... What happened before 
Jesus appeared. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. Well, one thing that I found intriguing, I think it was in this chapter, you said you were able to influence the subtle forces of nature. I could alter circumstances, change destinies, and modify the effects of other people's actions. And I wondered about that because it seemed like you were messing with people's karma or something. Yeah. And then you mentioned the Carol tradition of exercising dominion with nature rather than dominance over it. So I, I wondered if you kind of dabbled a little bit in modifying the effects of other people's actions, but then realized that you shouldn't really intervene in that way. I don't know if I ever saw myself as dabbling, in part because with transcendent dreaming, there's a loss of there's a loss of separation, so there is no you. And in the moment you have a will or a, a desire for an outcome, you, you spin out of the dream. So, so it wasn't a dabbling per se. It was the awareness that you are a generator and a catalyst in the moment because it's more energy available. So it wasn't your individuality that was messing with their individuality. It was more your universal nature, which is our, all of our universal nature that you were tuned into. Yes, and how do you... How do you witness and be in relationship to that? How and and as it's developing, how how do you feel about it? Um, and I did go through a period of wondering where this was going to take me, what it meant in terms of impacting the manifest world from an unseen place. Uh, I didn't have much control over it. I still don't to this day. Um, but I, it isn't that I. But I did go through this period of, of of wondering, and very early on, decided absolutely to s- stay with non-action. And um, you know, I never talk about my prophetic experiences. I never alert anyone. Um, I've I've chosen to simply allow that piece of my awareness to be an intermediary between the the visible and invisible realm without needing to influence it by languaging it or telling someone. So these things are happening to you not because you're you're being alerted to some situation that you're supposed to influence, but they're happening to you just because you're cognizant of a deeper mechanics of yeah i think i think it's a, the world i think it's a, a touching the substance of all that is that's that's everywhere at once you know it's hugely abundant endlessly abundant it's everywhere at once and 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 you, in some ways you become its agent um, so that the unseen can manifest onto the planet and um and you don't, you don't really. It really doesn't have anything to do with, you know, with myself. For for instance, in the last five years, I've had ninety-two transcendent language dreams where I'm actually inside foreign language and I'm like a new meme coming out of the planet. I, I, you know, that is not something I would choose to do. Uh, my personal will doesn't hang out there necessarily, and yet. There's something, when I touch the substance of all that is, that begins to have, there must be some sort of resonance or affinity, and 
my energy becomes available there. Yeah. You must be keeping a, a journal because otherwise you couldn't possibly have remembered that there were 92 of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I made a habit really early on of um, writing them down and just sending them off to my editor without editing them. And they're, they're just sitting. Most of them I have, uh, I don't have a clue of what's inside of them. I, it's, it's really coming from somewhere else. Yeah. But you said something a minute ago that was interesting, which is that perhaps you're serving as a conduit or a channel through which something is being infused into the world or something by virtue of your experience. You didn't use those precise words, but, you know. I mean, there's, you, we've all heard the stories of yogis in the Himalayas, and you actually mentioned a Caro Indian guy who just sat and prayed for the world. And there's, there's the idea of yogis in the Himalayas that are kind of helping to keep the world together by virtue of their their consciousness, even though they're out of the eyes of, out of the sight of humanity. Perhaps you, although you're more involved in the world, are, well, we're all having an influence. Everything we, everything we think, say, and do, and are, all seven point whatever billion of us are having, radiating an influence, and the sum total of that influence we see as the quality of our world. That's right. Uh, That's right. That's <laughs> with right. all of its troubles. And, you know, Rick, in keeping with this uh, notion of that we're all intermediaries for the unseen to come into the manifest world. I mean, essentially, uh, we're pure awareness, and that, and that is how it makes its way into the world. I think, you know, because I've been a dreamer, I have a number of people who want to tell me their dreams. And uh, they're almost inevitably interpreting the dreams personally, you know, like as symbolic in this way or to my purpose or in my destiny. But I have a, I get to sit in the place where people are telling me their dreams enough that I can see collective energy trying to come onto the planet. And one of the ways in which it comes onto the planet is through individuals' dreams. And that if people didn't move to a perceptual filter of the individual, but understood that the collective is actually uh, birthing itself through them, they would have a different experience of their dream. That's a good point. So it's not all about them. Mm-hmm. It's just, they're just, you know, like a, a radio that's picking up a certain frequency that's getting more yes. clear. Yes, it's, it's trying to find its way onto the planet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of, uh, you know, just the sort of, epidemic of awakenings in itself. We just put a, um, a new quote from Eckhart, a quote from Eckhart Tolle on, on Bat Gap. Let me just read it here. It's, um, Irene found it the other day. She's been wanting to put something up that sort of indicates that there are many people at varying stages of awakening, because sometimes we get criticized, you know, why uh, do you claim that all these people you're interviewing are enlightened? Um, <laughs> and, but you know, the subtitle of Bat Gap is spiritually awakening people. And so the quote from Eckhart was, a huge number of people are going through the process of awakening, some in the early stages, some in later stages, and it's wonderful to see. Um, but there definitely does seem, in my, from my perspective, to be something going on. And, um, and everybody in the world is experiencing it, whether they know it or not. It's, it's, it's percolating up and um, having an influence, which some people might really enjoy and others might find very uncomfortable, according to how prepared they are for that energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I would absolutely agree, and um, you know, and of course, there are multiple ways to to view 
what's going on, you know, whether the frequencies increasing on the planet and that every cell of the body is in resonance with the planet, so it changes consciousness, to is there an evolution in consciousness occurring? Are there mutations on the planet now? And um, I've given thought recently to what I call our new prototypes of consciousness, meaning the young children who we call on the spectrum, you know, or autism. And I've, I've been interested in how most of them have delayed language acquisition. So there's a quietness already <laughs> that uh, is almost resistant in a development place of learning language. And then also most of them cannot learn individuation um, as though they've come from that unity but can't, un- can't be in the world and adaptive uh, with individuation. And then, of course, that increased sensory sensitivity. And I say... You know, are we seeing the evolution that's really preparing the vessel for a different kind of consciousness? When I look at our millennials and the way the millennials' brain works, you know, you know how quick they are to multitask and to be uh, in multiple forms of media. And although you know people are quick to say the millennials are going to really have a difficult time with their heart space because they're all about connection through social media. Possibly, but maybe not. You know, maybe what's to come, it'll open more easily given how the, how the brain and the neurodendrites are unfolding um, allows them to move with such dimensionality and spontaneity. So I, I, I think we're just watching over, if you look at the generations, you know, I think for those of us who are baby boomers, we're really holding a hand across the bridge to how to be adaptive in our world. You mentioned something about the Carolindians envisioning what humanity might be like 100,000 years from now. Well, with reference to that and also in all of your dreaming experiences, um, have you gotten sort of any visions or insights into you know what humanity might be like in the in the much more near future, um, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and how the world is, how things are unfolding in the world. No, um, no. and you know it's interesting with a num- with with a number of prophetic uh, waking states I even have. They never move in what I would call a future direction, but I don't know, maybe the language dreams are that. It, they just, it just, it's not that easy to identify. Um, but I'm also someone who sits in a... Because I can be in this ever-expanding present moment with eternity on each side, and eternity doesn't mean a long time, it means no time. There's no time. So it's this multidimensional moment. You can, it's what's really exquisitely beautiful about it is you can watch something coming into manifestation and all of a sudden on another plane of realization, it eclipses it and something else uh, starts to move. And there's no cause and effect. It's more like effect, effect, effect in surround sound. 
where I wouldn't want to even blend my consciousness to what's possible because I think it would limit it. Um, I think we're at an interesting time with all the chaos and the tumult and the noise in the culture. And we know that higher order often comes from those places in, in time. Now, how long will that be? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look how chaotic the 60s were. And, um, you know, it was a time of such change. So I think there's some Chinese, the symbol for chaos or something. Right, in, right. In Chinese is, it includes the symbol for opportunity, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, we're there yeah. with that, that yeah. symbol. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in the conclusion of your book, you talk about um, the unit of experience with accompanying non-local awareness is now a regular visitor in the waking state for me. By regular visitor, do you mean it comes and goes as visitors tend to, or do you mean it's just characteristic of your regular waking state? Mm -hmm. um, it, it comes and goes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And you've spent the last several years teaching your students interested in non-dual awareness and an organic development and remaking of consciousness using the silence stamped in every atom of our body, the same silence from which all arises and returns. Um, and you found that most you know, people are not dreamers in the sense that you have been, that most don't have that aptitude, but everyone, perhaps you would say, has access to silence, and how do you help them access it? You know, Rick, the most common question I've been asked since writing Transcendent Dreaming um, nationwide and even worldwide has been how do you experience these expanded states of awareness if you're not a dreamer and I've, I've really been in a Rilkean way living into that question um, and at the same time over that 10 years my these states have become waking states for myself and so in living into the question, I've been kind of witnessing that organic unfolding in myself. And, and my teaching has reflected that. And uh, I'm fortunate enough that most of my students have been with me those 10 years plus preceding the, you know, the writing of Transcendent Dreaming. So they've been all along the way able to... Uh, kind of work the pieces uh, in the teaching that I think is, an, uh, is organically unfolding. And um, it's only recently that I've kind of come up with, one, I, I think that you can have a remaking of consciousness, uh, especially if there's a longing inside and there's, a, there's a, a natural maturing going on in the consciousness, meaning it's, it's to move here in this lifetime, uh, that that remaking is, is organic and there are phases to that development. And I like to use the word phases, not stages, because phases denote an interior change of energy and um, without the outside state looking any differently. And you know, phases can overlap with one another, and yet something emerges where the perceptual filter now of reality is different. And, you know, as, as we've talked about, um, if you take all the bells and the whistles away from expanded states of, of awareness, including plant medicinals, we can come right back down to the silence. 
And what it really means just to simply become silent for 20 minutes and to have the longing and the desire to enter the folds and the layers of that silence while quieting the surface consciousness. And so the, the three phases, you know, with unity consciousness being an art, the medium of the art being silence, just like sound is for the musician, color is for the, you know, painter, silence is for unity consciousness. And the craft, the instrument, is silence and the body because the cellular nature has that quietness stamped in it. And and when awareness touches it, union emerges from there and non-local awareness is just simply a byproduct of it. And so the first phase is the ga- is I call it the gathering of that surface consciousness. It's probably the most difficult phase. My students who've been voyaging for 40 years were frustrated with that stage because people soon realize that they're absolutely addicted to everything that's going on on the surface and they can't quiet it. So it begins this whole inquiry into why one would want to. Do you really want to? What do you think you're going to gain by you know? And then this everyday discipline of just sitting in silence, not guided, not with a goal, just bringing all your awareness while things quiet. That's the first phase. The second phase is that that quietness enters a stillness. And that stillness brings you to that place of emptiness or nothingness, which again is its own phase and uh, of organic development, meaning you, you would never want to force someone into emptiness. You, you pretty much have to feel complete with our everyday reality to move to this deeper place where one looks at it differently. And in, but in that emptiness, uh, you, you reach those currents of the silence that are coming out of the invisible world. And they are, your body is touched by that, and your awareness is touched by that. And the third stage is then how to surrender into that and be in the participatory experience of it. Now, we've been doing a year training with nine audios, um, which is really kind of the pilot of, of teaching this in terms of stages or phases. I think probably people realize that when, when you talk about silence, it doesn't mean just sitting and, doing, and saying nothing, um, although that might be a phase of it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's something which... Um, which integrates and stabilizes into your awareness. So you and I have been talking for two hours, but there's been silence uh, throughout. It's not like we've sacrificed silence in order to have this conversation. Um, And I found it fascinating what you just said about the impulses or currents or something within silence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Because usually silence is thought of as being sort of featureless and flat and empty and nothingness. Um, but there's a whole explanation of the dynamism within silence, which mm, we can we, we, we could 
Yeah, we could get into from the perspective yes. of silence, uh, from science, and also from the the sort of mystical or Vedic perspective, where it's understood that uh, silence and dynamism coexist uh, uh, as characteristics of that underlying fundamental reality. Yeah, it's a di- in, in, dynamic. Infinite silence and infinite dynamism both together. Yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, yeah. I call it dynamic perception in the body, whereas um, whereas the mind might feel it as a stasis, you know. So my awareness will feel it as a stasis, and yet there's an undulatory movement that carries the, the entire universe within the stasis. That's very hard to, you know, it's hard to language that. It's hard for someone to have that experience. Uh, but when you bring it all the way down in the cellular nature of the body, and you're touched by that stasis, that undulatory movement, then there's a, there's a physical experience that is associated with it. You know, the, the, the body is changing. And uh, so this is a very embodied way of remaking consciousness, you know. Yeah. It's, I don't know if I get get into this, but it's, it's, I'm looking at a picture of a galaxy on my computer screen right now because I always use galaxies as as my desktop pictures. But um, it's said that the, the very existence and emergence of the universe is um, as a result of that coexistence of silence and dynamism, um, which has this whole explanation about the self-referral dynamics of consciousness and everything. But just that, um, you know, that the, the the totality, the wholeness, contains within it both those qualities in, in to to an infinite degree, and it's it's their sort of the infinite, the frequency between them results in the um, the emergence of diversity, the apparent emergence of diversity of the universe and all the phenomenon and glory of, of the whole thing. But in any case, yeah, that one can mm-hmm. that can be an experiential reality. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Sounds like someone is doing Saturday afternoon trimming in their lawn. They are. As a matter of fact, the, the, there's a tree service that they, the people are big fans of Bat Gap, and, and, I, and I, they're cutting down a tree, and I said, can you just take a break from 12 to 2 because I'm going to do an interview? So, but now it's 2, and on the nose, they're starting again. <laughs> so we probably should wrap it up. Cause, Sounds you know, like we should. We're going you know, to hear a chainsaw. We have to get on um, with the day. I'll be linking to your website from batgap.com. People can go there and, and we, find out what you're up to. We will be I too. guess you have some kind of a monthly online thing or something that people can tune into? Um, or is that for your existing students? It's, it's, it's open to anyone. Uh, mm-hmm. If they, What's it under, under the website? It's called the Unit of Life Audio Series. So one has to purchase the series, and then they're in our virtual web um, okay. in our community where they actually get to listen to all the audios and um, and then you actually have follow-up meetings online and so on they can they can contact me they can shoot me emails um, yeah because you say you've been you've been referring to your students but I presume those are in the Minneapolis area but no. now that you're doing this interview I mean is there something that somebody in London can do mm-hmm. this is a global community and we have a community in San Francisco and a community oh, okay. in Seattle um, okay, great. So, um, 
eventually we may do something in Europe. But the beauty also is that we have the virtual classroom. Yeah, people can do online stuff. Yeah, and uh, we we have many who are participating nationwide, uh, just virtually. Good. Okay. Well, I'm really glad to have had this opportunity to speak with you and to bring you to the uh, attention of of my audience. And uh, I think many people will find this fascinating. And I, I really recommend your book. I think um, it's, it's not a big book. You can read it in an hour or so. Yeah, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I get these 600-page books. I bet you do. Uh, <laughs> so I, I want to thank you, too. I a relief when I saw this one. I want to thank you, oh. too, for, oh, you're welcome. for um, all the connections that you're making in our everyday world. And uh, we loved putting all of our students and community in touch with your whole library and archive of interviews. So thank you oh, so much. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a joy to do it. Um, you know, it brings a lot of meaning and purpose to my life, uh, sense of gratitude. And, and I also should always express gratitude to the many people who help with this. It's not just me. It's Irene does a huge amount. Mm-hmm. And then we have a team of people. There's people who you know monitor the questions during interviews. There's a guy who does all the video post-production, yes. all the audio post-production. Um, there's a there's a translation and transcription team and a, a fellow who's been you know really heading that up in a beautiful way. In fact, there's a volunteers page about on BatGap, and you can look there and see pictures of all the people who help and what they do, and maybe people would like to join in and help in some way. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, well, let me just make some general wrap up points. Um, I've been speaking with Christina Dunnell, and uh, yeah, I, I said it right. <laughs> and um, I'll be linking to her website, and you can just t- follow that link. And, and your website is what? It's ChristinaDonnell.com? Yes, yes. Yeah, and there's another one. Transcendentdreaming.com. Transcendentdreaming.com. Yeah, you can get to ChristinaDonnell.com. will get you everywhere, so, including okay. back to D-O- yours. D-O-N-N-E-L-L. And, uh, you know, this is an ongoing series, as I always say. Um, Tomorrow, I usually do one per weekend, but tomorrow I'll be interviewing Muji for the first time in six years, no, for the second time. And um, we have them scheduled all the way through November now. So if you go to um, batgap.com and look under the upcoming interviews page, you'll see what's on the docket. And there's a, a little sort of reminder thing where you can set a reminder in Outlook or Facebook or whatever to notify you of when the, when the interview comes up in case you'd like to watch the live one. And otherwise, um, if you'd like to be notified once the permanent interviews are put online, you can sign up for the mailing list and you'll get an email when I put up a new one. And there's an audio podcast, which we had been having technical problems with, but those are fixed. So if you, if you tried to sign up for that before and couldn't find it, try again. It's working now. Uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, search, you know, look under the various menus on, on BatGap and you'll see what we have to offer. So thanks for listening or watching. Thanks again, Christina. Thank you, Rick. Much appreciation and uh, abundant blessings to BatGap and to you. Thank you. Yeah, I really, I'm the prime beneficiary of this. It's not like I'm doing this out of a sense of selflessness. I was just like, (laughs) I I, I love it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So thanks a lot. And uh, thanks to those who are listening or watching, and we'll see you next time. Sounds wonderful. Thank you.